So that idea that like, oh, wow, there's, there's essentially a new technology architecture that is going to be ingrained in the, the paradigm or the systems that we're all living in. And it's being created right now. And, and it's sort of coming to life right now. That feels imperative to be there and to try to understand. Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster, than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode and offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort, I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good day. Another episode of Insert Human. Welcome to all my listeners. Thank you for joining us again for what I believe is going to be another mind-blowing show with one of my mind-blowing friends, Dave McLaughlin, who I've actually known, I don't even know, like 20 years? How old are we? Oh my God. For a long time. Dave is, he's what I would call a polymath, which is a term I didn't really know about until a year or two ago. A man for all seasons, a Renaissance man, creator, a producer, an author, an entrepreneur. He actually has a movie under his belt, which is just like a crazy thing, right? Southie, 1998. Yeah, true. Two movies, Southie and and also another movie called On Broadway that we made in 2006. Okay, so just just get that. Like, that's not really his thing, his vocation. And the guys has made created two movies like who does that? We actually, I think, spent most time together early on when Dave created something called Boston World Partnerships, which I want to I want to come back to. And then today, as of today, he's the global head of membership experience for a company you probably know called WeWork. So Dave, thank you for joining me on the show. It's a great, great, great opportunity. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited for the conversation. So, and by the way, audience, we are we are not going to talk about Dave's professional life as much as we're going to talk about his personal life and what I'm going to call his adventures and learning. We were just before the show started talking about how, you know, the purpose of a life, we would argue, is growth, achieving higher and higher levels of understanding of self, of others, of meaning, of purpose. And that requires exploration, requires trying things, it requires failing at things. And I think Dave's journey as a human is a really great example of what you can do when you put your head down and your heart into into growing yourself. But before we go there, I did want to just spend a few minutes hearing from Dave about Boston World Partnerships and what it was all about. And the reason for that is I actually have a sense, based on my recollection of what it was all about, that it was an idea ahead of its time, and it's the kind of thing that we need a lot of in the world today. So can you just give us like a, a two-minute on what, what you were doing there? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's, it's where you and I met, too. That, that was when is we it, met. Uh, yeah, that's right. So a little bit of background before that. You know, I had been a filmmaker. That was like my first kind of 10 years of my career. And then um, I, I was living out in L.A. with my wife. And then 
I sort of got burnt out on that business, decided I wanted to come back east. And I went to work in Boston for the then mayor, Thomas Menino, and, and, and was doing some interesting things with him and, and learning a lot. You know, city government is pretty fascinating and a great group of people and all that kind of thing. And, and somewhere in there, somebody called me and said, hey, you know, this script that you wrote, it was called On Broadway, you know, where is that? Who owns the rights to that now? And I said, I own the rights. It's sitting on a shelf. And, and this person said, you know, I always really love that. And I want to make that movie. I have the funding. Would you come and direct it? And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. So sure. I, I went to the mayor and said, do you mind if I take a leave of absence to make this film? And he was super supportive. And I went and I made the film. We had $1.1 million to make the movie. And by the way, we had a great cast. It was Joey McIntyre, the former new kid on the block. It was Eliza Dushku, a guy named Michael Malley. But then we had these super cameos. Will Arnett was in the movie. Amy Poehler was in the movie. It was so fun. It's such a sweet film. It's, it's on Amazon. You can check it out. But anyway. You could make a movie for $1.1 million? Yeah, we did. We did. And, and that's actually relevant to the story because I had no money left for a music project. And, and there was a song that I really wanted by an amazing artist named Joe Pernice. And, and my music supervisor said, I'm not going to reach out to Joe Pernice because you don't have enough money. And all that's going to happen is he's going to be insulted by what we offer him. And it's going to ruin my relationship with him, Dave. So I'm not doing it. So I said, okay. I didn't know anything. This was 2006. I didn't know anything about MySpace was like the prevailing social network at the time. But I did know there were a lot of musicians there. So I went and created a MySpace account and found Joe Pernice and sent him a note saying like, I love your music and I really love this song and I've made this film and it's quite personal. And, and I just wonder, is there any way to get creative about, you know, how I could use that song in the film? And I went to bed and I got up the next morning and there was a message from Joe Pernice that said, hey, totally get it. Take the song. You can pay me my full rate on the next one. Good luck. Oh my God. And, and that was amazing, right? So, it, but it was a, it was a, sort of um, epiphany moment for me that social media wasn't about like, I don't know, kids hooking up. It was, it had these like real business implications. And, and although that seems really, really obvious now in 2006, that wasn't. Right. And, and it wasn't obvious at all to anyone over like the age of 30. And, and so I went back to Mayor Menino and said, you know, everything we're doing around economic development, marketing, and trying to sort of grow the city's economy you should really look at this emerging social architecture. And the way that I'll explain it to you, Mayor, is to say, you know how every university in the world has an alumni organization and that's how they fund their growth? Well, the city of Boston should have an alumni organization and should use this emerging Web 2.0 architecture to connect with Boston alumni around the world and, and we can sort of drive growth that way. And that made just enough sense that he was like, yeah, that's really interesting. You should run it. And, and then he kind of put it forward and, and, you know, raised the money for it and that kind of thing. And, and that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to connect people who were passionate about Boston so that those people could share information and resources and grow the economy here. And we did a bunch of really good work. It was an amazing group of people, by the way, like what a awesome network, people who are doing really ambitious, interesting things, but also just like kind and, you know, like mm -hmm. team players and just a great. And these spot. are people all over the world, obviously. These are the alumni of, of people that lived here as well as people that don't live here. Yeah, as it, as it took shape, it was sort of biased toward the people who were actually here in Boston. But but it did also involve folks in, in other places. And I'm still in touch with, you know, lots and lots of those people. Really, really awesome. But anyway, that's what it was. That's how it came to be. And and so it was one of these things that came out of my life as a filmmaker, which wasn't mm -hmm. actually my job at the time. But then it cycled back to my job at the time. And, and that's been my experience a lot in life that like if you're if you're just kind of immersing yourself in interesting things, like possibilities come out of that and, and dots connect and um, yeah. our opportunity. I mean, I think that the the relevance today, I mean, as you know, I'm writing this book, Technology is Dead, and and I'm at the part of the book where I'm trying to fashion what I call a framework of potential solutions because it's far beyond me to figure out how to solve all the problems of the world. But one of the sort of obvious components of the framework, I believe, has got to be collaborative systems. That, that technology has sort of um, 
has pushed individuality or raised individuality in a lot of cases over community, over collective interest. So how do we band together, whether the context is a, is a, is a city or the context is a country or the context is a, is a planet? How do we do a better job of at a, at a human level, at a consumer level, not, not at a government level? How do we work together? How do we collaborate? How do we, you know, share resources to try to take on the increasingly existential threats we face versus every person going alone or every city going alone? You know, we've got to find more connective mechanisms, I think, to get to the scale we need to take on the enemies we have. And so I just, it's interesting to, do you think, where did that go? I know that the globe took it over. Yeah. and we, we never really could figure out how to fund it in any sustainable way. Yeah. Because, because the nature of the thing was you were like so far upstream from the economic winds. You were making these connections and bringing people together and identifying resources. But then like three or four things needed to happen. And inevitably the win would be attributed to those other things. And so, you know, connecting that to funding sources was, we couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was amazing. By the way, one of the things actually that relates to the point that you're getting to is one of the things I really learned there and I'm very grateful for that experience for for this reason among others is that as the leader of the it was a nonprofit you were leading a network and so I really got to learn that you lead a network differently than you lead a hierarchy and and I think what's kind of happened in the world is the network is becoming more of the prevailing yes. organizational concept than the hierarchy. Yes. And, and you look at right now, here we are, it's um, October, 2021. And, you know, there's this sort of story that I keep seeing about people leaving their jobs and they don't want to go back to work in the conventional sense. And, and I think that's because people have grown up with networks as their sort of org concept. Mm-hmm. And, and so anyway, the world is kind of shifting that way. You hear the internet referred to as a hive mind and, and that makes sense. And, and so how do you lead in that context? Right. Becomes a really important, you know, skill and sort of thing to reflect on. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting in the book, I talk about that very thing, the, the shifting from sort of a traditional hierarchy system, which has been around since we were, you know, we were cave people to, to this, this amorphous networked flat structure with nodes and and ebb and flow on who's who's leading what i think that the challenge is the collision of the two worlds and 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 figuring out how they you know do they fit together or does one replace the other like ultimately how does this unfold i think the other thing that i is so relevant to it is the the chapter i've been working on recently is about systems and this idea that to solve the problems of the world, we have to revisit and potentially reinvent all the core systems. The systems are, you know, they serve, they serve their role for, you know, a period, but they're now out of sync with the needs of the world, the challenges of the world and, and, and technology, whether it's education, healthcare, finance, even the economic system. But if you actually look at why these systems don't really work that well. And I think this goes to a nodal network kind of governing structure or management structure. It's because the incentives are not the right incentives. And so I think, you know, as we, as I know we're sort of up in the, up in the sky right now, but as we contemplate ways to make things better at a macro or at a micro level, really understanding incentives and designing incentive systems that motivate the right behavior versus the wrong behavior, you know? And yeah, I, I, you know. anyway, that's where I'm so grateful that you didn't try to make me answer that question because I was like, oh, where are you going with this? What, what kind of pressure am I going to Well, you know, I mean, I actually think that's a perfect segue to, I annoy the hell out of my wife sometimes because I am nothing but questions. I actually don't have a lot of answers. I mean, I, you know, I can come up with hypothetical, like, oh, the way we should do that is this, but I don't really know. And I think, you know, you and I were talking earlier about your curation of your life and not just through the lens of career, but through the lens of being and, and how you, how you found yourself on this path of curiosity and 
and personal growth? Was that like hardwired into you as a child? Or was there a moment in, when you were 18 and you're like, I don't want to take the road often traveled. I want to take the road less traveled. Like, how'd you get to that? Yeah, yeah. You know, do you know what I mean by that? that yeah, sure, sure. I know exactly. You know, there was an inflection point in my life. And there are a bunch of inflection points where I had epiphany moments that, that really changed the trajectory of my life. And I can usually associate them with a specific teacher or book. But but what happened for me was I was, a, you know, a bright kid who did well in school, but wasn't really that passionate about anything. And I went off to Boston College. My, my dad was a professor at Boston College, so I could go there for free. So I went. And um, I, I was in this honors program in the, the College of Arts and Sciences, and, and I got assigned to write a piece of fiction. And I had never written a piece of fiction before. And I, I did it, and I just fell in love with it. And mm -hmm. so I was like 19 years old, and I had this experience of that's really important that I've said this to many, many people. When you're working at something that's really difficult, and you also lose track of time, that's a really powerful signal and you should pay attention. To it. <laughs> so when you're trying to write a piece of fiction, it's hard, it's not an easy thing to do, but you could spend eight hours and forget to eat lunch. Like spend more that's time. That's a good sign. You know? And, and so that's what happened to me. I, I kind of fell in love with this and then I decided I was going to leave school and, and write fiction. And, and I did that for a while. And in the course of doing that, I, I you know, you, serendipity happens. I, I wound up uh, shifting to writing screenplays and, you know, I didn't know how to write screenplays, so I went to the, the Boston Public Library in Copley Square, and I took out 10 books on how to write a screenplay, and I taught myself how to do it. And that was a screenplay that became the movie you mentioned earlier, Southie, which was Donnie Wahlberg and Amanda Peet and Rose McGowan and some other people. And that was kind of my first professional experience, you know? Yeah. And so, so that, that, that's always been kind of the thing for me is just trying to find what moves me and then, and then sort of give myself over to that. And what I sort of learned about myself is that if I'm really enthusiastic about something and curious about that thing, I'm going to be pretty good. And if I'm not, inevitably, I'm pretty mediocre. And there's kind of no in between. And so, you know, once I sort of had that little bit of self-awareness, that's just the way I kept kind of driving my Right. My I mean, one thing I want, to, I want to call out is, um, because I've talked about it before, I've written a little bit about it too. I think... You know, when people use the word serendipity, I think some people hear that as straight up luck, like just random something happened. And I think that's partially true or, or certainly a piece of what the word means. But my experience, and I guess there's a question in this for you, is I also believe you can increase the chances of serendipity simply by stepping forward into situations yeah, of course. That, that you I mean, might that, not that have, be, right? That wouldn't be a controversial belief, you know? Like, like you put yourself in the flow. Right. And, and or, you know, in a sports metaphor, you got to kind of hang around the hoop, you know? And, and so who was I talking to recently that had had some fantastic success? And it was not something that this person had sort of intended. Oh, I know, it's these, it these real estate developers that I know. They were having this amazing success coming out of COVID. And, and the model that they were having this great success with was not the model they set out to build. And right. so you could say like, oh, they just got lucky. But my reaction, and I think yours is like, no, they took risk based on something they had conviction. And then number one, they get into the space and the flow. And then they did something else that's really, really important, which is they didn't have this rigid fixed attachment to their original idea. They paid very close attention to sort of what the feedback loops were telling them and they iterated and sure enough, they found themselves in this amazing place. So the notion that serendipity or luck is something that's completely passive is, you know, it's silly. On the other right. hand, the notion that it's something that you've completely created, that's probably silly too. Right. You said earlier that um, somebody in your life I think it was a family member made a comment about how you, everything you touched turned to, I don't know if the answer was gold, but turned to something really good. And then, and then you laughed, you know, and I guess, why'd you laugh at that? <laughs> it was an insignificant conversation. I just thought it was funny because this person, you know, who I didn't see a lot, a project that I was working on at the time was, 
sort of in the news and doing well. And and she said to me like, yeah, you know, everything you touch turns to gold. And I was thinking, oh my God, like where were you when the last startup failed? Where were you when the five screenplays that I wrote that didn't get sold, you know, sat on my shelf? Like, like that's the most absurd statement you could make, number one. But what I said to her was, really happy that that's your perception, you know, because like, what else are you going to say? But there is a, I mean, I think people hear, hear stories like yours and, and think, wow, what a courageous person to, I mean, to make a movie, you, it's not like you went to movie school growing up, like, yeah, you, just the courage still to step forward into a milieu that you had like zero experience other than being a writer right i mean you never produced a movie before i don't, I don't even know what that word means really honest i didn't even go to the movies really i really had no business going <laughs> into that domain i grew up in a house where our television was broken for like six years and we didn't fix it so um yeah look i attribute it to my parents i, I think you know they created a sense of um uh, safety and yeah, uh, yeah. And the sense of you know you should try to be true to yourself and and try to do something you know substantial and, yeah. and noteworthy and so forth and so yeah if i look back at my you know 19 20 year old self i i think oh yeah you know you took risks but but i think what i was keen to even then is the opposite path was full of risk as well it just was risk that people didn't you know call out quite as overtly meaning the risk I was really afraid of was winding up on a path where I was uninspired. And because I was uninspired, I was mediocre. And and because I was mediocre, I was unfulfilled and unhappy. Like that's right. the risk that I could really see. Right. And so for me at the time, making those decisions, I didn't really worry about, uh, you know, the cost of those decisions. I worried more about the cost of not making those decisions. Yeah. And I think we, we share that trait, you know, I, uh, somebody, I don't know if I ever told you this, somebody once said vis-a-vis -vis my career, you know, you've really bounced around. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You know, I don't think they meant it as a pejorative, but maybe they did. I don't know. But, you know, from my reality is similar to yours, which is, or my, my career path is similar to yours. I have in front of me this little card my daughter gave me a couple of years back. Uh, she gave me seven books for my birthday two years ago, and each book had, was wrapped separately, and it had a little card like this on it, little three-inch by three-inch card that she wrote something on. And each book was for a different sort of motivation. So this one was titled, for Dad, for when you need some inspiration. Here are the words by one of our favorites, Neil, Neil Gaiman. He has a line that reminds me of you. He said, I tended to do anything as long as it felt like an adventure and to stop doing it when it felt like work. <laughs> That's great. That's great. You know, I just, and I think, I, I think hope for, that, can I just say, I, I hope that my kids are teenagers, but I hope that someday they give me a gift as thoughtful as the, the gift. Oh, I mean, I have, I have the seven, you know, and I, and I have them right on, under my computer. And I would say on a weekly basis, I flip through them. I read them. I mean, if yeah. the gift of these was the gift, the books were great. But yeah, this, totally. you know, this, <laughs> this was the gift. I mean, one, one thing I think I want to call out that I think applies to your life and certainly applies to my life is the ability to, to shift direction, to pivot, for me anyway, was largely predicated on, on my, the people around me, you know, that the people around me, either in terms of moral support, emotional sustenance, resources, ideas on ways to, where to go, you know, like think, think if there's a, if there's a must do as one, as one charts, one's course, it's, it's about surrounding yourself with with the right people, good people. I, I don't know if you, you know, I know you agree with that, but. Yeah, yeah, but look, I think, you know, culture wins, culture wins. And so if, you, if you're with a group of people that have a certain culture, like it's, it's deep in us to, to want to belong, to want to fit in, you know? And, and so what happens, I think for most people is you kind of conform to the culture of the group that you're part of. And, and if you're with 
you know, a certain group of people that can be pretty, a pretty negative thing to say. And if right. you're with another group of people that can be really positive. And so, I, you know, I've sort of tried to, in my life, find what I would broadly call artists, which is just, you know, people who are trying to find something that's true and figure out how to express that into the world and, and yeah. figure out how to understand that. And, and, you know, those people are, at least in my experience, often achievers as well, but, but the, they're less sort of like optimized to the outcome and more optimized to the process and the, yeah. the kind of inputs and the debate and the discussion and all that kind of thing. Those are the people that I find, you know, real kinship with. And, and I just, you know, and those are the people, by the way, that when you see them succeeding, you're thrilled for them. And, and you're just kind of going through life going like, how can I be helpful to you? And, yeah. and of course, you know, everybody loves that. And, and so, yeah, you know, there's this kind of cliche that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, but like, directionally at least i think it's true probably true i mean i saw a bit of research the other day which was not profound but simply reinforcing what you just said which is people people adopt the behaviors of those around them and so those five people i mean you know you become and to your point if the culture of those people is a negative culture i mean abusive culture uh an ungenerous culture like you you find yourself heading that way even if your principles are different. You know, you yeah. just, by the way, you know, the last call it 24 months have been an amazing, like just, just understanding humans and, and like, you know, sort of psychological mm. case studies and like, so anyway, there's a lot that happened in the last 24 months, but if we just take the COVID piece, I just really think this was a lesson for, for any of us that are paying attention and how much people need other people and and you need that connection and you need that belonging and and so then if if that really is true then all the more reason that you want to be intentional about like so who's your people who are you right. trying to you know spend time with and and sort of learn from and and support and all that kind of stuff and i think part of what covid did the silence of covid created space to listen better. And I don't mean like literally, I mean, just sort of observe both what was going on in COVID, but also what was going on before COVID. And I wrote a piece called from pull to push. And the whole idea was without the pull of constant transaction, the seduction of, of consumerism, of, you know, going out every night of the week of whatever you were doing, all of a sudden you were you were, you were with a blank piece of paper called your life and, and you were allowed without the noise to listen to yourself, maybe, maybe for the first time. I mean, that's certainly that felt that way to me. And, and so coming out of COVID, I know we're still coming out of COVID. I have more clarity than I've ever had before. Yeah, but I mean, I'll just point out the obvious that not everybody used that opportunity the same way. Right. So, right. you know, some people are coming out with more darkness and more and more, you know, confusion and so forth. And so, yes, I think that that space was created. And but I also think that, you know, just people people were prepared to sort of use that differently. I mean, I'll go back, you know, I remember meeting you, you were running Hall and Mark at the time, along with Mike Traiano and, mm -hmm. and I think Rob Waldeck and, and coming over to your office and, and talking with you guys. And, and, you know, it was one of these conversations and I've been fortunate to have these conversations a lot in my life, but I know they're still rare because most conversations aren't this way, which is, you know, you kind of connect, you have no prior history and you say, so tell me what you're trying to build, blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's amazing. What about this? What about that? And it just becomes this instant sort of conversation about, you know, not about you and your ego and me and my ego or mm -hmm. whatever. It becomes about, right, what are we trying to bring into the world? And and when you meet those people, that's like, all oh, right on. Like this is this is, you know, this is my tribe. And and I've had that experience on films, and I've had that experience in entrepreneurship, and I've had that experience in, you know, in, in City Hall. I've had that experience in my family, whatever. But but it goes back to kind of people are wired a certain way. And so then, and I think that that wiring isn't, I don't mean like that's purely something you're born with or whatever. It's the result of kind of 
habits and, and, you know, carrying yourself a certain way over time. But then when an event like COVID comes up, you know, you're just so much more prepared to handle that because how you've been carrying yourself through other challenges and adversity and opportunities along the way that weren't as massive as COVID necessarily, you know, weren't as, weren't as like, um, sort of like the totality of COVID, like it was everywhere. You couldn't get away from it, you know? Right, right. Uh, so anyway, just, you know, um, goes back to your comment about like, what kind of people do you want to be with? And for me, it's like, oh, those are the kind of people I want to be with. Right. I think um, earlier we were talking about incentives. And I think as you, well, this is this actually, I'm going to ask you this question, even though it's probably unanswerable, but as you look at your life today, moving forward, I'm not talking about your professional life. I'm talking about your life. What are, what are your, what are the motivating incentives and, or if you don't like that question, <laughs> discard it, <laughs> what are the measures? Because yeah, I mean, humans, I- we know that humans need carrots and respond to sticks. So as you think about your journey and the propulsion of your journey, again, as a human, what, what is within you that in a way you're after, you know? So at the end, then you look back and you're like, man, I did it. What is it? <laughs> I mean, I have my own answer to that, but you, I want you to go. Sure, sure. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's sort of how I answer that as an individual. And then, and then there's another layer, which is like, you know, as a husband, as a parent, et cetera, right. like or pieces of that. But the truth is they're all sort of facets of the same answer. You know, for me, I want to be energized. I want to be, I want to be jumping out of bed in the morning, you know, sort of thrilled that I have a day to work with. Right. And, and, and that's just like what I'm hungry for. And that's what I find, you know, makes me happy is to, is to be engaged on that way where I'm, I'm working on hard th- things but I'm loving the challenge of working on hard things Yeah. part because they're interesting for some reason. And in part because of who I'm working on them with. Yeah. And so that's like, I have crystal clarity at this point in my life that, that that's what, you know, kind of moves me. And then the next part of the answer is, and therefore that's what I want to model, you know, for the people around me and the people that I love. Like I remember talking to my, my son when he was, maybe five years old, like in kindergarten or something. And by the way, my, my dad, when I was young, he, he always like sang in the morning and stuff. And you know, and you're you like, what? What'd you say? He like, he like your dad, like what? Sang, like he sang songs. Oh, he sang in the morning. Yeah. He'd always sing in the morning. And you know, we had, we had 11 kids in my family and you know, the, the house was very crowded and you know, it'd be cold. We, we didn't have a lot of money. The heat was always down that kind of thing. And my dad would be like singing songs, you know? And in hindsight, I'm super grateful for that. And I'm absolutely like all of us kind of become our parents a little bit. So I do the same thing. I mean, I, Wait, I, you sing song to your kids. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm like, I consider it my job to bring energy into the house, mm. you know, in the morning when people are getting up, I, I have the heat higher than my father had the heat, but you know, that's a different <laughs> context. But anyway, my son was maybe five years old and, and I was making him breakfast. And I said, you know, we're, we're lucky because we both like where we go during the day. Like we both love what we're going to do during the day. And he said, what do you mean, dad? And I said, well, you know, like you love kindergarten, right? And he goes, oh yeah, I love my teacher and everything. And I was like, yeah, and I love work. And he goes, yeah. And then he goes, do you mean like some dads don't like work? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, what a, what an amazing, what an amazing little blessing that is. Mm, you know? yeah. So, so anyway, you asked me like what moves me, you know, that's, that's what, that's what I'm always sort of trying to find and hold on to and, and, and grow, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the measure, you know, I guess the measure at some level, as you look back at the end, whenever the end is, is simply the level of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's a level of, of energy and um, creativity, inspiration. I mean, I guess my point is it's not things it's how it felt is, is that fair yeah yeah i don't i don't think it's so much about things 
I mean, it's 2021. I'm driving a 2012 Highlander. Like, I'm not really a things guy. Right. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I think it's about, you know, a sense of like authenticity that you're using your time well. Yeah. Like, like in, I didn't play hockey, but my, my kid drinks a lot. And, you know, sometimes you hear somebody say like the saddest thing in, in, in life is wasted ice time. You know, you, you skate these one minute jits, like use them, use them, do something, impact the game, you know? And, and so that's kind of the way I think about it is like, you know, you should, you should be grateful for the day and you should try to use it and you should try yeah. to use it to, to, you know, express what you believe is true and authentic and, and also to, um, you know, try to be useful to other people. Yeah. I mean, the word I often come back to is curate, you know, it's an active, it basically implies to me, it implies proactivity and choice and that days are not done to me each day is a gift that sounds maybe a little trite but it's pretty true and how it doesn't, I, matter. It doesn't matter if it sounds trite you know what i mean like yeah. simple and and yeah it's true sorry so as you think about well i actually want to i want to digress a little bit here but it's relevant so Dave and I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and then maybe before that, a couple of weeks before that, and he mentioned to me that he's he's been digging into this thing called crypto. And I, I said to him, you know, I think before the show started, I said, I'd like to talk about crypto as part of your life journey, as part of like how you approached it, what you've learned about it. I think it impacts the world, obviously. I think everybody's hearing about it. I think most people don't understand it. And so I would, I would love, you know, an every man's view of, from you on what it means to every man, like crypto. Yeah. Like, what yeah. do you, what do you see? Like, what do you, you're, you're a student, you do your homework. Like what, what, what's Dave McLaughlin's version of the, 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 the crypto decentralized thing. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I think it's. <clears throat> I think it's just a sandbox of creativity. What what is happening in crypto slash what's sometimes referred to as Web three? So, you know, let me just explain the Web three concept at a at a high level for people who've never heard it. Web, the first generation of the Web, Web one, was basically about information, right? Remember, we for those of you who are around, we we sometimes refer to it as the information superhighway. And then, hilarious. And, and I can picture like. What was his name on Saturday Night Live that, that used to always talk about that? Anyway, and then the second generation of the web, web two was about social. And you know, now like everybody's got a microphone and you can share all these sort of pieces of expression are portable and so on. Right. Well, the third generation of the web, if you buy this paradigm is about value transmission or to say that even more simply money. So the idea that you can, you could get information into a digital form phase one that you can make the information super shareable and portable and manipulatable, web two. Now the idea that you can bake value transmission in with that and transmit money or value seamlessly in the same you know, set of actions, that's web three. So when you think about kind of extrinsic incentives, this is what I think is, one of the things I think is really fascinating about crypto is that it's basically a way to bake extrinsic incentives into anything that exists in our digital life, which is most of our life or half of our life. I guess it depends on the person, but mm -hmm. let's just say like the, the digital portion of our lives is pretty big. So that idea that like, oh, wow, there's, there's essentially a new technology architecture that is going to be ingrained in the, the paradigm or the systems that we're all living in. And it's being created right now. And, and it's sort of coming to life right now, that feels imperative to be there and to try to understand. You know, I love that characterization of the three stages of web, you know, and, I, and I, it's funny, if you hadn't continued on with your explanation, you know, the stage of information, obviously the benefit of that, there are many benefits of that, that's pretty clear. And then the stage of malleability and interaction and sharing, I think the benefits of that are clear, maybe, maybe even a little less clear, but they're, they're there. And then 
And then when you talked about sort of the capacity of having the money function within the environment, my first reaction was that, well, what's the benefit? You know, we got Venmo, what more do we need? (laughs) (laughs) But you went on to say, I think is a really interesting idea that you can, you can build in the incentive effectively into the, into all the applications and all things you use in a seamless way. Is that, is that, I don't want to word it. hundred percent. And, and so there's that, like when you think about how digital experiences and digital goods and digital commerce will be designed going forward, you know, just like simplistically take, take the whole part where you enter your credit card out. You know what I mean? Like, because, because value transmission will be baked into the experience. And, and so that's like kind of a, again, a little bit of a silly example, but like just to, to kind of shake up people's thinking a little bit, then you could go back to stuff that's just more, more like practical through the lens of today's society. Like right now, you know, if I, if I want to bet against you and you owed me, you know, $5,000 and we were in different cities, you would probably have to wire that to me and it would take five business days and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I saw recently something happen with a, token that I was paying attention to where it dropped way down. And I had a lot of conviction about this particular token. And so this was, you know, 530 in the morning, I got up, I saw that the token had dropped 20% during the night. And so I said, oh, I'm going to buy some. So I, I, uh, I went to my bank, I moved a couple of thousand dollars into my Coinbase account. I transferred that to a stable coin, USDC. I moved the USDC from my Coinbase account to my MetaMask wallet, which is a digital wallet for crypto purposes. (laughs) And I went on to a digital decentralized exchange. So an exchange that has no human institution in the middle of it. And I bought a couple of thousand dollars worth of this token. I did all that end to end four minutes. So, So just like think about the practical value of being able to move money that way. Yeah. And that's and that's separate from yeah. to what I'm proposing the future will look like proposing, you know, people who are into this are proposing the future will look like, which is that value transmission will be ingrained with digital goods and and media. You know, yeah, this is this is a paradigm shift kind of moment, I believe. What's the benefit of that? Ease well, of use, speed. You know, there's a there's a philosophical benefit which is about decentralization. So let's take let's take like your your social networks. Like like if Web two, and, and other people are much more articulate about this than me. I'll tell you. I'll just mention a couple of names of people like Chris Dixon at at A16Z is one of the most articulate people at taking this stuff, which is highly complex and sort of getting it into simple layman's language. So if somebody's looking for you know who to go follow, that's one. And if people want to, you know, podcast recommendations or whatever, you can come to me on Twitter. It's Dave Mac Boston, and I have loads of them. But the one benefit, Chris, is that because things are decentralized in their architecture, there's less ability for a centralized institution, for example, Facebook, to come in and make decisions that are good for Facebook, but bad for us as a society. Well, that's, you know, feels pretty relevant at the moment, I think. And whatever side of the political kind of spectrum you're on, you know, sometime in the last 18 months, you've been pissed at Facebook for making decisions that were biased against you, or at least that was your perception. So this notion of centralized institutions having that much power is pretty precarious. But if that exists as a decentralized structure, which is what the blockchain and crypto allows, you know, we can build the institutions of society differently. So that's like the big philosophical point. I'll give you a more specific kind of tactical example. One of the places where we're seeing real creativity and adoption in crypto is in gaming. Now, I don't play video games, but but you know lots and lots of people do. And so there's a super interesting example called Axie Infinity. Many people probably know about it. And you know these are not the real numbers, but something like this are their revenue numbers. In April of this year, they had revenue of like six hundred thousand dollars in in May, the next month, it was like $2 million. In June, it was like $20 million. And then oh, in no. July, it was like $180 million. So they just saw this completely nonlinear, you know, revenue explosion. And, um, and the way Axie Infinity works is you don't pay to buy the game. You, you actually, the avatars that you use in the game are, are NFTs, which is a type of token. 
And, and so you buy your avatar in order to play the game. And then as you play, you win battles, you are rewarded in other tokens. The interesting thing about those tokens in this case is you can take them outside of the game ecosystem and you can, you can convert them back into dollars or you know whatever currency in your country. And wow. so, so when you say, what's the benefit? Here's what happened during COVID is you had people in places like the Philippines where the, the household income is low, who couldn't work in their shop or drive their taxi because of COVID that were playing Axie Infinity and making more money for their family through a play to earn video game because oh, of the way that crypto is baked into that and supporting their families during COVID. So, so you know, that's probably two good examples because the parameters I just said are pretty broad. One is big philosophical societal institutions kind of, you know, level of thinking about it. The other is, you know, a shop owner in, in Manila who's, who's feeding their family by playing a video game because crypto is baked into it. So I'm going to make a, a little leap here and connect the dots between the decentralization conversation and the Boston World Partnership conversation. <laughs> well, the idea, and again, this is very relevant to the book that I'm working on, this idea that the, the traditional hierarchical models of governance and rule and management aren't equipped in part because of their legacy, sort of whatever notions, systems, but also just philosophically aren't equipped to embrace the, today's world and today's challenges. And that, that effort that you made way back then to create collaborations across a nodal network um, was really sort of a, a forerunner of what we're seeing with this decentralization movement, whether it's the, 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 crypto thing, or we were talking the other day about what is it? Decentralized autonomous organization DAOs it's called. Yeah. yeah. Like there's clearly a movement yeah. towards breaking down the pyramid of rule yeah. and replacing it with a more democratic, less, I'm not going to, I was going to say less corrupt, but okay. I'll say it, you know, more egalitarian. Well, let's, say, let's say less corruptible. Less I mean, corruptible, it, right? Better it's said. Less, it's less hierarchical. So, you know, obviously there are many hierarchical organizations that are doing wonderful things, and then there are others that, you know, lose their way. Yeah, th this notion of DAOs is is sort of the thing that I'm really trying to get my head around right now, and I'm like, I'm only midway in that in that effort, so I can't uh, give it to you perfectly. But 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 basically, the idea is that there's a, an entity, a decentralized autonomous organization, by which people come together, and and advance some mission. And so the way I think about DAOs is they have to have three essential components. One is a mission, two is a treasury, and three is a set of rules by which they can deploy the treasury to advance the mission. You can think of that almost like a constitution, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then people can come in and out and, and the software that these run on and the way that they you know, their data is stored, is on the blockchain and therefore it's decentralized. So there's not the possibility for somebody to come in and, you know, defraud that. And, and, and these people kind of come in and out and form hives is probably the best metaphor to contribute actions that advance that mission. And you see this in, you see this in crypto. It's sort of like, if you think of the Venn diagram between crypto and something else. So you'll see this in like, I don't know, crypto and finance, there are DAOs. If you think about crypto and media and art, there are DAOs and so on and so on. So we're early in this and, and people are kind of figuring out the constructs and mores and that, and people are figuring out the tooling by which you sort of do this. Mm -hmm but it's, it's pretty fascinating. So that's something that I'm, I'm trying to, and it's one of these things you get into it and you're like, all right, I think I understand it. And then you like read the next blog post and you're like, no, I don't understand it. Wow. <laughs> you know, that happens to me like 10 times a week. Well, for me that I made that comment earlier about I'm more questions than I am answers. I'm totally okay with that. Like, I think there's, I've felt a lot of satisfaction simply in wondering and trying to understand 
versus getting to the absolute answer. And I, I also think in today's world, the answer today may be different tomorrow. You know, things it's all moving so quickly that absolutism maybe, you know, is not not that applicable anymore. That we've got to be adaptive, we've got to be open, we've got to be willing to not know, you know, and and I think for some people that's a really uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, I would say for most people. I mean, and, and it, by the way, it's not really their fault. I mean, it's it's the way we're brought up. You know, we right. have this perception that school is about learning answers and that, you know, the people in that next job up know answers that I don't know. And, and I mean, you know, I've had that perception really almost up to my current age. I mean, you know, it's only it's only really in recent years that I've fully come to appreciate that the higher I go in organizations, the more it's about, you know, how I frame the questions than it is about how I answer the questions. Right. And, 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 you know, I think, and this is another one of those places that the internet has changed because most answers are on Google, but like <laughs> how you frame the question that you ask Google right. is really going to shape what answers you get and the value of the answer that you get. So there's a, there's a guy I'd like to tell you about a, a team that I'd like to tell you about that I think is super interesting and important. And it's a, it's a group in Cambridge called the right question Institute. And I met this gentleman, Dan Rothstein, and his partner's name is, I believe, Luz Santana. And, and what they've done is focused on teaching people systematically, replicably, how to ask better questions. Hmm. And, 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 um, and this came out of some work they were doing in low-income school district in, I think, Lawrence, Massachusetts. And, and what happened, you know, at least as I understand the story, was they were working with these families, largely Salvadoran and Guatemalan immigrant families, and, and they observed that the parents in that instance weren't engaged in the kids' schools. And so they said to the parents, like, you know, don't you know that if you get engaged in your kids' schools, your kids will have better results? And, and they kept hearing a phrase back from these immigrant parents who, who didn't speak English as their first language. And the phrase was, we don't even know what questions to ask. And, and so then they... I like to tease people from Harvard. So I'll say first they did what people from Harvard do, which is they made a list and told them what questions to ask. And then they realized that wasn't that good. So, so they actually said, no, we actually have to teach people a skill to know how to generate their own questions, you know, on the fly in the everyday situations of life and, and parenthood and management and so forth. And they created something it's, it's called the question formulation technique. And I'll tell you, Chris, I probably use it five times a week. And yeah, I mean, I'm honestly, Dave, I'm like, jaw was on the ground. It, you know, it's on the ground. Like, wow. Yeah, it's, wow. it's really powerful. And it's really simple. It's one of those awesome things that like, you don't, you don't need to be out of eighth grade to learn how to do this. But once you learn how to do it, it's a game changer in conversations and decision making and, you know, how you allocate resources and all this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, I'm what's spinning through my head is all the failed startups that I saw at Harvard, coincidentally. <laughs> and, 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 you know, a lot of that is them not asking the, the founders, not asking the right questions to my, my, you know, my relationship with Kate and, you know, every now and then we get into a little, little uh, skirmishes. And I think some of that is not, I mean, I, it's just, it's so it's like the most I mean, it kind of is, is almost equivalent to my whole thing about we suck at understanding behavior in part because we suck at knowing what the right questions of ourselves and others are like, I yeah. gotta, I gotta have these guys on the show. Yeah, I think you should. I'll introduce you to them. I don't know Luz as well, but, but I've gotten to know Dan really well. And he's just a lovely guy. And is it a for-profit or a not-for-profit? It's a not-for-profit. Yeah. Wow. In fact, you know, at work, I, at one point I, I hired them to come in and sort of teach this to the whole management team for the territory that I was running at the time. And it just, again, it just changed the way that people were bringing decisions to me. And, uh, and you know, it's like, you know, the line in Alice in Wonderland, I think it's the, I forget which character is, but, but one of them says, which way should I go? I think it's the cat says, well, where do you want to go? And Alice says, well, I don't really care. And then the cat says, well, then it doesn't really matter which road you go on. And yeah. And it's that kind of thing. It's like, oh, if we can be more intentional and have more clarity about, about where we want to go and, and then, you know, we can kind of map the path there much more readily. And, yeah. and that's hard to do in a noisy world, by the way, because things are always pulling our attention and, and sort of, uh, you know, it's easy to get distracted.
I also, I also think part of that is we are drawn to doing, we are drawn to doing. And so oftentimes we will jump, we will jump the question. We will jump the intention. We will just put our head down and start doing. And, and then we get halfway done. You're like, why isn't this doing what we thought it was going to do? And you're like, well, what did you think it was going to do? And you're like, oh shit, we never answered that question. Yeah, totally, totally. People, people confuse activity and progress. Yeah, you know, like. By the way, wow. happens it's sort of epidemic in startups, you know, because <clears throat> there's this kind of ethos around like just hustle, just hustle, and 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 of course, like hustle is important, but also like methodology is important. Well, I mean, when I when I left Harvard, by the time I left Harvard and observed hundreds and hundreds of well-intended, hardworking student startups and alumni startups not succeed i ultimately came down to it the way to increase the chance of success not guaranteed success is to be answer three questions what is the problem really that you're trying to solve does the solution really solve the problem and do you understand the customer really and the operative word, obviously, was really, because I think if you, even if you're asking the right question, sometimes you're so fixated on getting to an answer that you, you sort of don't, you don't really understand what's coming back. Like you don't really see the nuance. You don't really, you have a little bit of, but you don't have the whole picture. So I, anyway, I love that. And let, let me, I'm mindful of the time and you got to get back to work. I'd like to sort of ask yeah, you. I lost track of time. This is one of those things. You lost track of time. It must be good. It's the universe telling you. Yeah, I know. It's like an hour. Like, oh, my God. Oh. What are your questions as you as you ponder your life, you know, as you whether it's as an individual, a parent, a partner? Like, how do you do you have questions about the world? Like, you know, like, what are the what are the big questions you're asking? You know, there's a way of looking at things where you go, boy, it's hard to be optimistic, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty discouraging, you know, that you can look around at. And I, I don't like to put my head in the sand relative to that stuff, but I also don't have it, I haven't learned yet in my life how to encounter that stuff and have it be productive. So I, I tend to sort of try to find scopes where I think I can, you know, bite something off and, and sort of, you know, have a chance at moving the needle. And so that's, so like the way that you phrased the question, you know, felt broad. And so I feel like I have to acknowledge the broad stuff that I frankly don't have a clue about. Yeah. You know, I guess the, what, I, what I'm sort of, I really do believe that this signal that you get when you're working at something hard and you lose track of time is an important signal. You know, some people call that flow or flow state, like being in that place is a really powerful place to be. And partly because, you know, to be great at anything takes a lot of work. And very simply stated, it's easier to do the work if you enjoy it and you lose track of time. Yeah. And so, you know, the notion of like, hey, do what you love, it's sort of bandied around like it's this romantic kind of thing, but it's actually a very pragmatic direction in a certain way. Meaning if you can find something that, that you love doing, you will put in the hours to become great at that thing. And, and you know how you map that to like opportunities to put food in your fridge is sort of for you to figure out. But this idea that you should trust your own kind of joy and energy, I think, I'm a real believer in that. And that's, yeah. you know, the evidence of that is in my life. And then when you come to a place where you have to, you feel that it's risk, then what I would sort of coach people to do, or what I would try to do myself is think about how you can take a step with reduced risk. So, you know, when you said about the questions startups need to ask, baked in those questions is another question, which is how will we know if we're wrong? So if you think about a startup, and, and this is what the whole lean startup kind of methodology is about, as you know better than me, is you have a hypothesis. The definition of a hypothesis is a testable belief. So you have some belief and you design a test to see if you're right or wrong. 
And, and if you're wrong, then, you know, you try to iterate on the hypothesis and run another test. And if you're right, then when you're right, you try to get resources and double down on the test, right? And, or double down on the result. So I just think in your own life, if you have something and you think I, that's what I feel like I should do, but you're afraid of that risk, then ask yourself, you know, what could I do that would give me, that would validate this for me, which is another way of saying it will reduce the risk that I'm wrong. I and, love that. And, yeah. and, and often that can be, you know, like, like, for example, I really, you know, one might say, I really want to, I really want to, you know, write a book. Okay, great. And, and that's a big undertaking, right? You know, you're doing it. But somebody could say, I want to write a book. And I think the way I'm going to test this is by writing a blog. You know, like oftentimes there's a smaller step you can take that's yeah. less daunting, less psychologically vulnerable and, and less like risk in terms of your real life. You can take it and you can build confidence and you can learn a little bit about like, oh, I'm right, but I'm 10% off. Let me correct for that. That's a way of thinking about things that, you know, if you go through life thinking that in every decision you either have to be right or wrong, that's a lot of pressure. But if you go through life going like, hey, this is the right direction. Now let me figure out how to kind of calibrate the steps that I take. That's a much easier way. That's a kind of a constant learning mindset. And, and like you said, many people aren't, you know, aren't aware of that mindset or, or haven't embraced it because it is, it is a commitment. It's a practice like, like, <clears throat> like religion is a practice or like yoga is a practice. Like you have to live in that sort of way of working in order to get the benefits of it. Yeah. I mean, it I love what you said. And it's, it's a form of what I said earlier about I, this whole idea of absolutism. Like there's an, it's all or nothing. There's one answer. There's one path for me. If I'm not happy here, I have to do one. I think it's not, it's not, that's not a helpful view. Like I, I think the idea of trying to, I love the idea of, of, of applying lean startup to one's life and, and trying small bites, little pieces, you don't have to blow up your life to dabble over here to determine if it if 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 it's a good thing or a not good thing, you know. And and you know, I was just thinking about like not you know writing the book example, start a blog, take a writing class, you know. You know, there's a bunch of different things you can do to get into that space before you decide it's right or wrong, you know. Yeah, I think. One of the things you really, you really, you know, come face to face with when you go into like a true hyper growth startup is sort of like, you know, I'll say two statements, speed wins and also speed kills. And so, right. so, you know, like you have to get comfortable with like, how do I move fast enough and not kill this thing at the same time? And, and there's another concept that's related to what we're talking about. That is a nice metaphor. A lot of people find useful. And that is, one-way doors and two-way doors. So when you come to a decision that's a two-way door, meaning like you can go through, but you can come back, make that decision fast. And when you come to a decision that's a one-way door, meaning like you go through, you can't really get back through, get back to this side of it, you know, make that decision slowly. So, so that's great metaphor. Great. Yeah. Come into forks in your life and you want to do something, you want to take a risk, etc. You know, again, recognize the risks on both sides, right? Because it's not like, oh, if I take this path, that's where the risk is. There are also risks if you don't take the path. That's part one. Part two is, you know, try to find ways to reduce the risk so that you can take a smaller step. And the one-way door, two-way door, you know, metaphor can be helpful in, in how you think about that. No, that's great. And I think, uh, I'm mindful of the time, I think we should wrap up. I think it's a, a perfect way to wrap up. I so appreciate you as a human as a friend and as a, a source of wisdom for, for the listeners. I mean, I think your life story and it's, it's only half done, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, Peter, Peter Drucker, I heard Jim Collins on an interview with Shane Parrish and, and he said that Peter Drucker, who was his mentor wrote, I think 10 books between the age of 80 and 90. And I think that's amazing. Like that's it's my great. God. I, I'll tell you this story as we wrap up my mother, passed away recently. She was a really remarkable person. And, and she was the epitome of a lifelong learner. And there was a time about, oh, maybe five or six years ago, I, I called her 
and and just checked in and said, you know, how you doing, mom? Like, what are you up to? And and she says, oh well, I I I started a a China study group, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said, wait, what do you mean? You started a China study? Group? She said, well, yeah, you know, Dave, I just realized I don't know very much about China, and and I just thought like, my God, I think she was 84 years old at the time. I just thought like, you know, that's where I, I want to be 84 years old, starting learning journeys about things that I haven't quite gotten to yet. And like yeah. sort of carrying myself that way in the world. And, and she was an amazing model for that. So anyways, I hope that that story resonates. It completely resonates. And uh, thank you for being on the show and we'll have you back soon. Thank you for having me. It's such a, such an honor. I'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.